Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Tabloid TV was born and raised in the 90s. And if shows like Hard Copy, A Current Affair, and Inside Edition chose to shine the spotlight on you, it didn't matter whether you were guilty or innocent. Your life was on display and the court of public opinion could seal your fate. It was a down-and-dirty style of pseudo-journalism, the likes of which we'd never seen. And in every case, nearly the exact same sequence of events. A crime was committed, news vans would show up, camp out for days in front of a courthouse or the front lawn of anyone connected to the case. They would incessantly hound and chase the main characters, pay cash for tapes and diaries, and then they would even dig through trash for any scrap of information. High drama was on display, and we couldn't get enough. The story of a 17-year-old girl charged with shooting the wife of her much older ex-lover would have been a blip on local news. But with the dawn of tabloid TV, it was catapulted to prime time and captivated a nation. I'm Kathy Kinzora, and this is the History of the 90s, a podcast about a decade that changed the world. And on this episode, Tabloid TV and the Long Island Lolita. On May 19, 1992, a senior at Kennedy High School in Merrick, New York, went to see the school nurse, claiming she was sick. She was given a pass to leave school early. Instead of going home, the girl had a male friend drive her to a modern waterfront home in Massapequa, New York. This was the home of her 36-year-old lover, his wife, and his two children. The doorbell rang just after 11 a.m. Standing on the front porch, wearing cut-off jeans and a T-shirt, was an attractive teenage girl, and she wanted to talk. The wife, a petite, blonde, 37-year-old stay-at-home mom, stood in the doorway. She was confused. The girl told her that her husband had been having an affair with her younger sister. As the two women leaned on opposite railings of the front porch on Long Island's South Shore, the teen held up an extra-large T-shirt from the auto body shop the husband ran as proof of the affair. But the girl was lying. She didn't have a younger sister. She was the one having the affair. The wife kept her composure and told the girl she didn't believe her, and she turned to go back inside the house. She wanted to call her husband and clear everything up. She didn't make it through the front door. With a loaded 25 caliber pistol in her hand, the teenager hit the wife in the back of the head. She went to hit her again, and that's when the gun went off. The wife fell on top of the high school senior. The teenager pushed her off and ran back to the waiting Thunderbird. Neighbors heard the shot, and the wife was rushed to hospital by a helicopter. She wasn't expected to survive because the bullet severed the carotid artery in her neck, shattered the base of her skull, and it ripped through her right eardrum. The motive for the attack was as mysterious as the identity of the would-be killer. But after eight hours of surgery, and in a surprise to everyone, the wife woke up. She described her attacker to police. Detectives relayed the information to her husband. According to police, he broke down and told them the description 
matched a teenage girl that he'd been having an affair with. Within days, he would change his story and deny the affair. But for now, he gave them Amy Fisher's name and address. Police told the media that Joey Buttafuoco had met Amy Fisher when she was 16. He ran his dad's auto body shop, and Amy and her parents had brought a car there for repair. 36-year-old Joey, who usually dressed in tight jeans with a massive belt buckle and pointed snakeskin cowboy boots, had a big, huge head of curly brown hair and the physique of an out-of-shape bodybuilder. Detectives believed that Amy shot Mary Jo Buttafuoco because Joey had wanted to end their 18-month relationship. They said that for Amy, it was a near-fatal attraction. Amy was arrested at her parents' home, and she was charged with attempted murder, illegal possession of a weapon, and several assault charges. The incident didn't make the news for four days, and even then, it received only a bit of attention. But slowly, over the next few weeks, the shooting of Mary Jo Buttafuoco ignited the media. It was the New York tabloid newspaper, The Daily News, that actually labeled the teen the Long Island Lolita. All three New York City print tabloids had a field day with the story. The wall-to-wall coverage spread to mainstream media, too. You're familiar with this style of newspaper. You know, the ones like the National Enquirer, which often have an emphasis on sensational crime stories, astrology, celebrity gossip, and television. This type of media coverage was pretty common in the 90s. Just think, Lorena Bobbitt, Tanya Harding, Anna Nicole, and Pam Anderson. One thing I want to stress about virtually all of these 90s tabloidy stories that we're talking about is that in the grand scheme of things, they're inconsequential. These are the, their effects on the, on the lives of most of us. That's David Camp. He's a Vanity Fair contributing editor and has profiled such monumental figures as Johnny Cash, Sly Stone, and John Hughes. In 1999, he wrote about this type of coverage. He called it the tabloid decade. Stories today about climate change or stories in the 90s about the you know, savings and loan crisis, you know, those things, even, even though they might seem boring, they really affect everyone's lives. Whereas these stories were inconsequential in that they, they really didn't affect us at all, except we became obsessed with them in a way that, you know, previous consumers of media, previous ordinary Americans were not so consumed. For him, media coverage started to go downhill with the arrest of Paul Rubens in 1991. The actor who played Pee Wee Herman was picked up for indecent exposure and tabloid media went crazy over the story. Camp believes there was something so weirdly out of proportion in the coverage of that case. It was such a victimless crime. The, 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 a, a likable actor with a weird um, kitty you know, show persona is arrested for indecent exposure in a porn theater. Um, it's kind of funny. I can see the irony of it or, or just the, the, the free song of ridiculousness. Of, hey, that's a funny story. But then it became this prolonged uh, multi-day or multi-week story um, with the mugshot being irresistible, I guess, because he didn't look like Pee Wee Herman. He had long hair and a goatee. And this guy you think of as this goofy, smiling person suddenly has this baleful, sad, 
look on his face. It was just so disproportionate to the importance of the story, which became kind of the model for all the stories that followed. In the Amy Fisher case, the Daily News in New York ran the story on the front page for more than 10 days straight when it first broke. She was depicted as an obsessed, out-of-control teen who decided if she couldn't have Joey, no one else could. Her parents hired lawyer Eric Nyberg to handle Amy's case. Nyberg would later become part of the reason the story stayed in the news. But initially, he seemed like he was looking out for his client's best interest. Nyberg finally said what we were all thinking. What the heck was a 36-year-old man doing with a 17-year-old girl? The media had painted Amy as an obsessed teen, but shouldn't Joey have some responsibility in the shooting too? Regardless of what happened, he had taken advantage of a minor. With her face hidden by her long red hair, 17-year-old Amy Fisher declined to answer questions while being taken to court for arraignment. It will soon be up to a jury to decide what story to believe about Amy Fisher, whether she is an attempted murderer, as the prosecutors say, or a victim, as her defense attorney maintains. Joseph Botafuco remained tight-lipped today, declining to comment on allegations he was having an affair with Amy Fisher. As appetite for the Long Island Lolita grew, so did the media coverage. Coverage that started in print led to primetime TV. And in the early 90s, three main tabloid TV shows reigned supreme. A Current Affair, hosted by Maury Povich. Yes, that same one with the lie detector test. Inside Edition, hosted by Bill O'Reilly. That's correct, same guy. This is how he got started. And of course, Hard Copy. These were all um, programs that started in the late 80s that kind of reached critical mass in the early 90s. They were tabloid TV shows, and they were basically infotainment shows that were sort of like news feature shows, but they weren't like classy shows like 60 Minutes. They, 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 they were um, you know, much more akin to, uh, you know, reading a, a, a tabloid newspaper, and not even like a, a big city New York Post newspaper, more like, um, you know, reading, reading The Globe or The Inquirer or a supermarket tabloid. Hard Copy was the first to get an exclusive interview in the Amy Fisher story. Eight days after the shooting, Hard Copy ran an interview with Amy's classmate and friend. The girl, who was only identified as Jennifer, said that Amy had confided in her about the relationship with Joey. She said that Amy had spent time with his two children, who called her Aunt Amy, and that Joey was going to leave Mary Jo. Jennifer also said that Amy's parents knew about the affair. Some of the details that Jennifer provided were pretty salacious. But what happened next, well, it blew that interview right out of the water. A competing tabloid news show, Inside Edition, was going to air portions of a videotape that showed Amy in a hotel room having sex with a man who said the teenager was a high-priced escort. The unidentified man said he had three dates with Amy, and he secretly videotaped the second encounter. He sold the tape to Inside Edition for 7500 bucks. The tape, which became known as the Lolita Tape, was peddled by Inside Edition to reporters before it was played on the show. This led to extensive coverage in newspapers and other media outlets before it even aired. This could have been a huge ratings boom for Fox, 
but there was one small glitch. Inside Edition was scooped by hard copy, the same show that interviewed Amy's classmate Jennifer. On the day Inside Edition was scheduled to air the tape, hard copy ran a portion of the tape on their show, which aired a half hour before Inside Edition. Inside Edition producers were furious and accused hard copy of stealing the video by picking it up from a satellite signal. There was a feeding frenzy for this story, and it seemed profit over product was the key for the tabloids. Amy Fisher was composed when she walked into court. She is presumed innocent, Your Honor. As the media frenzy increased, so did the drama in the courtroom. At Amy's arraignment in December of 92, her lawyer lobbed an accusation at Joey Buttafuoco that further inflamed the situation. Eric Nyberg accused Joey of being the one who lured the teenager into prostitution. He said it was Joey who took advantage of her innocence. This was in court. So let's take a minute here to catch up. A teenager shot a woman in the face because she was having an affair with her husband. And in her defense, her lawyer accuses the man of luring the girl into prostitution. This was a sign of the times. The prosecutor, Fred Klein, was having none of it. He said that describing Fisher as a normal teen was like describing mafia boss John Gotti as a normal businessman. Klein argued that the Buttafuoco's were petrified that if the judge set Amy free, she might try to finish off Mary Jo. The judge set the bail at $2 million. That's an extremely high figure in any case, but for this one, it seemed downright excessive. In fact, it was the highest bail for attempted murder in the history of Nassau County where the crime took place. In comparison, the bail for an accused murderer at the same time was set at $250,000. You have to wonder if the media coverage somehow played into the judge's decision. Either way, there was no chance that her parents, who ran a small upholstery shop, could ever afford that kind of money. Amy's lawyer, though, came up with a very creative solution. In a televised interview, he announced that he would give exclusive access to Amy Fisher and her story to any TV or movie producers who were willing to post her bail. Now, just so we're all clear here, most major news organizations don't usually engage in checkbook journalism, paying for news stories. But the feeding frenzy was intense. And this? This was uncharted territory. So really, anything was possible. In the meantime, Joey Buttafuoco seemed to go on his own publicity campaign after the bail hearing. Up until that point, Joey had pretty much shunned the media, but suddenly he began to embrace the spotlight. The man who was known for bombing around town in his white Cadillac or roaring across the bay in a speedboat called Double Trouble started to hold court with the reporters camped outside his house. Joey brought them sandwiches and talked at length about the situation. He said he loved his wife and he denied being Amy's pimp. Hey, uh, Gary, is Joey Buttafuoco calling in? This is fascinating. Oh, that was another thing. I was gonna... Then Joey took it up a notch. He unexpectedly called the Howard Stern radio show. And for 10 minutes, he chatted and joked around with Stern. Stern asked Joey how Mary Jo was doing. 
Joey said she was doing a bit better, and he seemed to kind of brag or complain that he was looking after his wife and running the household while she was recovering from her near-death experience. Stern jokingly said, when she realizes you were cheating on her, she is going to kill you. Joey laughed and said, Howard, I wasn't cheating on my wife. I'm faithful to my wife. Joey said in his Long Island accent, I've been dying to be with a 37-year-old girl all my life. I finally got one. What the hell am I going to go back with a 16 or 17-year-old throwback? Joey's own lawyer reprimanded him in the media for going on Stern, and he ordered him to stop talking to the press. But Joey didn't stop, and eventually the lawyer quit the case. As the weeks dragged on, Amy's lawyer seemed to be having trouble securing a deal with Hollywood producers. So Amy remained behind bars. While in jail, Amy was given a tutor who helped her prepare for her final exams so she could graduate on schedule from high school. Yes, let's remember that at the center of this media storm was a teenage girl. In the meantime, Mary Jo agreed to sell her version of events to CBS and TriStar TV, who would produce a made-for-TV movie about the case. Mary Jo's lawyer held a news conference and said that his client would be paid several hundred thousand dollars, and she needed that money to pay for her mounting medical bills. Mary Jo had been left partially paralyzed from the shooting. She had blurred vision and hearing loss, and she needed ongoing therapy. The day after Mary Jo's TV deal was announced came news that Amy had also signed a deal to sell her story. KLM Productions from Long Island paid $80,000 in non-refundable cash to help secure Amy's bond. The rest of the money was raised and Amy was released. But before that happened, the judge warned Amy to stay away from the Buttafuoco's, do not contact them in any way. The Buttafuoco's were furious. They tried to have Amy's bail revoked, arguing that Amy shouldn't be allowed to profit from her crime. You see, the U.S. has the Son of Sam law, which explicitly prevents criminals from selling their stories. But the judge pointed out that law was for convicted felons. And since Amy hadn't been convicted yet, it didn't apply. So Amy was allowed to remain on bail. Television crews and newspaper photographers set up camp outside her house. Amy mostly stayed inside, though, watching TV and playing with her dog. Behind the scenes, things were busy for Amy's lawyer. He was negotiating a plea agreement with prosecutors, and he got one. Amy would plead guilty to one count of reckless assault, which carried a sentence of 5 to 15 years. In exchange, the prosecutor promised to consider statutory rape charges against Joey. When Amy appeared in court to plead guilty, she seemed somewhat contrite, but she continued to insist that the shooting was an accident. Her parents sat in the front row as Amy told a hushed courtroom about the day she shot Mary Jo Buttafuoco. The judge set a sentencing date for December 1st, 1992. Normally, this is the point in a news story when reporters would start packing up and heading home. The case seemed like it was pretty much over. The only thing left was sentencing. But another bombshell was dropped the very next day. And once again, it was lobbed by tabloid TV show Hard Copy. 
The show obtained surveillance videotape that showed Amy visiting her new 30-year-old boyfriend, Paul Makeley, at his gym the night before she appeared in court to plead guilty. He was allegedly paid $10,000 for the video. She could be heard asking Makeley to marry her so they could have conjugal visits while she was in prison. Then she told Makeley that she liked all the publicity she'd been getting because she can make a lot of money from it. Amy said, if I have to go through all the pain and suffering, I'm getting a Ferrari. The release of the video destroyed Amy. According to her lawyer, she attempted suicide two times over the next two days, and she had to be admitted to a psych ward. The media's unrelenting coverage of the story and the public's insatiable appetite for every gritty detail had finally taken its toll on the teenager. And sadly, there was more to come. While she was in hospital, Hard Copy, in a one-two punch, released another tape featuring Amy. This one was an audio tape that she had sent to her boyfriend, Paul Makeley. On it, she said that her father did terrible things to her and her mother looked the other way. She never really elaborated on what those terrible things were. The reporter who acquired the video and audio tapes told the media that he didn't feel responsible in any way for Amy's mental state and attempted suicides. And an executive producer from Hard Copy said our obligation has been and remains to cover the story as best we can and present the truth as we find it. David Camp, the Vanity Fair editor we heard from earlier, believes tabloid TV shows changed the way society consumed tabloid news. Because we're so available on regular TV for every American, um, the tabloid sensibility spread much further than it ever had. It used to be more of an urban phenomenon where people, you know, would, you know people in big cities would pick up their big city tabloids. Um, it used to be more elective, meaning you had to choose to put down money to buy a tabloid. Now all you had to do was turn on your TV and it was there, and suddenly you were in tabloid world. So everyone saw and heard these new tapes, and it was more than just embarrassing for Amy. It also had legal implications. The prosecutor announced in court that he was dropping the investigation into Joey Buttafuoco because Amy was an unreliable witness. I have seen the entire videotape, Judge. That conversation demonstrates an attitude on the part of this defendant that was so uh, arrogant, perverted, and revolting that I would never put her on the witness stand under those circumstances. Amy's defense lawyer, Eric Nyberg, said the prosecutor had betrayed their trust. To him, it sent a message to all parents that if you have a 16-year-old daughter, it's okay for a man twice her age to use her for his own sexual gratification. On sentencing day, there were long lines of people hoping to get a seat inside the courtroom. As each of the main characters in this drama made their way into court, they had to push their way through a sea of cameramen, photographers, and reporters from as far away as Japan, France, and Puerto Rico. Before the judge handed down his sentence, Amy apologized to the court for what she did. Leaning against her lawyer with tears in her eyes, she said she wished she could take it all back. When she was done talking, the judge ripped into Amy for what she did. For many months, you had stalked Mary Jo Botafuco, 
like a wild animal stalks its prey, motivated by lust and passion. You are a walking stick of dynamite with the fuse lit. The judge sentenced Amy to between five and 15 years in prison. Amy's mom burst into tears as the now 18-year-old was led handcuffed from the courtroom. Mary Jo was also in court that day. It was the first time she had seen Amy since the shooting. She was given an opportunity to make a statement. My two beautiful children are having a difficult time leaving me alone. They are afraid I might not be there when they get home from school. They have been severely traumatized by this event, and this, to me, is the greatest tragedy of all. All this damage by someone who still shows absolutely no remorse for her actions. More than a dozen of Mary Jo's family members were in the courtroom to show their support. But Joey Buttafuoco didn't attend the sentencing. At a news conference later that day, he continued to deny having an affair with Amy. Amy Fisher is a liar and has zero credibility. She knows that. I know she's a liar. I know she has no credibility. A year later, the prosecutor started looking into Joey again after one of his former employees came forward to say that Joey had bragged about having sex with Amy when she was 16. An investigation proved that he had, and he was charged with nearly 20 offenses. But as part of a plea agreement, Joey finally admitted to having sex with the underage teen and pleaded guilty to just one count of statutory rape. Joey's sentencing hearing was no different than any other part of this story. The media circus reassembled outside the courthouse where it was taking place. No fewer than 14 satellite trucks lined the streets. Dozens of reporters, including Geraldo Rivera, attended. Many outlets carried the hearing live. A New York Times article about the hearing said the case had graduated from a media event to a full-scale public spectacle. Someone was even selling Joey Buttafuoco t-shirts, and crowds applauded every time Geraldo walked by. Joey Buttafuoco was fined $5,000, and he was sentenced to six months in jail. He spent just four months behind bars. Amy ended up serving more than six years in jail. Before she was released, she began corresponding with Mary Jo. Amy eventually apologized to the woman she once almost killed. Mary Jo accepted her apology and forgave her. The media phenomenon that was the Amy Fisher, Joey Buttafuoco story ended up spawning two books and three made-for-TV movies. This was pretty common back then. All three major networks aired new original movies every week, and a lot of them were ripped from the headlines like the Amy Fisher story. Sometimes two networks would do the same story, but this was the first time that all three made a movie about the same thing. Maybe you remember watching one of them. There was the ABC version starring Drew Barrymore as Amy. It was told from multiple points of view and didn't really pick a side as to who was guilty or not. The CBS movie starred Alyssa Milano and told the story from the points of view of Mary Jo and Joey Buttafuoco. And then there was the NBC version, which told the story from Amy's perspective, portraying her as an innocent victim. All three TV movies scored very high ratings. The Drew Barrymore version was the highest. A senior TV executive at the time said it was hard to get away from these types of movies. 
She said, we all say we don't want to keep on doing these true crime movies, but then these numbers come in and what choice do we have? For that poor TV executive, true crime podcasts hadn't been invented yet. Eventually, the main three networks, they got out of making made-for-TV movies and miniseries altogether for a whole bunch of reasons. For starters, it was just too expensive. Paid cable channels took over, and now you have to turn to HBO, Lifetime, or the Hallmark Channel for original movies. As for tabloid TV shows, Inside Edition is still on the air. Hard copy was canned in 1999, and A Current Affair went off the air in 1996, but it made a very brief comeback in 2005. Tabloid shows disgraced celebrities of the 90s, people like Hugh Grant, Marv Albert, George Michael, and President Clinton. And it exploded cases into the spotlight, cases like the Menendez trials, Heidi Fleiss, Rodney King, Woody versus Mia, Michael Jackson's child accuser, and the Branch Davidian Inferno. Today, TMZ is doing the closest thing to those shows in the 90s. Their focus is more on celebrity gossip and paparazzi footage. But they also cover their fair share of tabloid stories and high-profile crimes, like Optimum and the trials of Casey Anthony and Scott Peterson. Tabloid news didn't start in the 90s, and it certainly didn't end there. But David Camp is convinced things were much worse during that decade. There's kind of a, a, a sordidness to the way the 90s were covered and the way they unfolded that was so new and so um, abrupt and complete a change from what had been before that I think was more tabloidy in a sense than, than, than the period we're living through now. It just felt dirtier and more soiled. After jail, Amy Fisher briefly wrote a column for the Long Island Press, and she published a couple of books. She married a man 25 years older than her, and they have three children. And after a sex tape the couple made was released, Amy had a very brief career in the adult movie business. They eventually got divorced, and Amy has moved back to Long Island with their kids. Amy has done a bunch of TV appearances, including a celebrity boxing match with the Octomum, and she has even appeared on shows with the Buttafuoco's. Mary Jo and Joey stayed together for another 11 years after the shooting. They divorced in 2003, and a few years later, Mary Jo released a book called Getting It Through My Thick Skull, Why I Stayed, What I Learned, and What Millions of People Need to Know About Living with Sociopaths. Her face is still partially paralyzed, and she's deaf in one ear. As for Joey, well, he remarried after the divorce and has made a ton of TV and movie appearances. He's refusing to let go of his 15 minutes of fame. Thanks for joining me on this journey through the tabloid decade. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps us spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We're available for free at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard today and links to all our guests. If you want to reach out to me, you can find me on Twitter at 1990shistory, Facebook, and you can email me at 90s at CuriousCast.ca. That's 90s at CuriousCast.ca. 
This show is hosted and co-written by me, Kathy Kinzora, and Dila Velasquez, our producer. Sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s.